You are listening to the Philosophy Podcast. Here we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Nietzsche, and more. To give us your impressions of this podcast, we encourage you to write a review at the iTunes Music Store. For a complete listing of all the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit us at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Published in 1781 Edited by Arthur Mee and J. A. Hamerton 1. Knowledge Transcendental Aesthetic Experience is something of which we are conscious. It is the first result of our comprehension, but it is not the limit of our understanding, since it stimulates our faculty of reason, but does not satisfy its desire for knowledge. While all our knowledge may begin with sensible impressions or experience, there is an element in it which does not rise from this source, but transcends it. That knowledge is transcendental, which is occupied not so much with mere outward objects as with our manner of knowing those objects, that is to say, with our a priori concepts of them. All our knowledge is either a priori or a posteriori. That is a posteriori knowledge, which is derived from sensible experience, as including sensible impressions or states, while a priori knowledge is that which is not thus gained, but consists of whatever is universal or necessary. A complete transcendental philosophy would be a systematic exposition of all that is a priori in human knowledge, or of all the principles of pure reason. But a critique of pure reason cannot include all this. It can do little more than deal with the synthetic element or quality in a priori knowledge, as distinguished from the analytic element. We perceive objects through our sensibility, which furnishes us, as our faculty of receptivity, with those intuitions that become translated into thoughts by means of the understanding. This is the origin of our conceptions, or ideas. I denominate as matter that which in a phenomenon corresponds to sensation, while I call form that quality of matter which presents it in a perceived order. Only matter is presented to our minds a posteriori. As to form, this must inevitably exist in the a priori, and therefore it can be considered apart from all sensation. Pure representation, entirely apart from sensation, in a transcendental signification, forms the pure intuition of the mind, existing in it as a mere form of sensibility. Transcendental aesthetic is the science of all the principles of sensibility, but transcendental logic is the science of the principles of pure thought. In studying the former, we shall find that there are two pure forms of sensuous intuition, namely space and time. Are space and time actual entities? Or are they only relations of things? Space is simply the form of all the phenomena of external senses. That is, it is the subjective condition of the sensibility under which alone external intuition is possible. Thus, the form of all phenomena may exist a priori in the soul as a pure intuition previous to all experience. So we can only speak of space and of extended objects from the standpoint of human reason. But when we have abstracted all the forms perceived by our sensibility, there remains a pure intuition, which we call space. Therefore, our discussion teaches us the objective validity of space with regard to all that can appear before us externally as an object. But equally, the subjective ideality of space, with regard to things if they are considered in themselves by our reason, that is, without taking into account the nature of our sensibility. Time is not empirically conceived of, that is, it is not experimentally apprehended. Time is a necessary representation on which all intuitions are dependent, and the representation of time to the mind 
is thus given a priori. In it alone can phenomena be apprehended. These may vanish, but time cannot be put aside. Time is not something existing by itself independently, but is the formal condition a priori of all phenomena. If we deduct our own peculiar sensibility, then the idea of time disappears indeed, because it is not inherent in any object, but only in the subject which perceives that object. Space and time are essential a priori ideas, and they are the necessary conditions of all particular perceptions. From the latter and their objects, we can, in imagination, without exception, abstract. From the former, we can't. Space and time are therefore to be regarded as the necessary a priori preconditions of the possibility and reality of all phenomena. It is clear that transcendental aesthetic can obtain only these two elements, space and time, because all other concepts belong to the senses and presuppose experience, and so imply something empirical. For example, the concept of motion presupposes something moving, but in space regarded alone, there is nothing that moves. Therefore, whatever moves must be recognized by experience and is a purely empirical datum. 2. Transcendental Logic Our knowledge is derived from two fundamental sources of the consciousness. The first is the faculty of receptivity of impressions. The second, the faculty of cognition of an object by means of these impressions or representations. This second power being sometimes styled spontaneity of concepts. By the first, an object is given to us. By the second, it is thought of in the mind. Thus, intuition and concepts constitute the elements of our entire knowledge, for neither intuition without concepts, nor concepts without intuition, can yield any knowledge whatever. Hence arise two branches of science, aesthetic and logic, the former being the science of the rules of sensibility, the latter the science of the rules of the understanding. Logic can be treated in two directions, either as logic of the general use of the understanding or of some particular use of it. The former includes the rules of thought, without which there can be no use of the understanding, but it has no regard to the objects to which the understanding is applied. This is elementary logic. But logic of the understanding in some particular use includes rules of correct thought in relation to special classes of objects, and this latter logic is generally taught in schools as preliminary to the study of sciences. Thus general logic takes no account of any of the contents of knowledge, but is limited simply to the consideration of the forms of thought. But we are constrained by anticipation to form an idea of a logical science which has to deal not only with pure thought, but also to determine the origin, validity, and extent of the knowledge to which the intuitions relate, and this science might be styled transcendental logic. In transcendental aesthetic, we isolated the faculty of sensibility. So, in transcendental logic, we isolate the understanding, concentrating our consideration on that element of thought which has its source simply in the understanding. But transcendental logic must be divided into transcendental analytic and transcendental dialectic. The former is a logic of truth and is not intended to furnish a canon of criticism. When logic is used to judge not analytically, but to judge synthetically of objects in general, it is called transcendental dialectic, which serves as a protection against sophistical fallacy. Analytic of Pure Concepts The understanding may be defined as the faculty of judging. The function of thought in a judgment can be brought under four heads, each with three subdivisions. 1. Quantity of judgments. Universal, particular, 
and singular. 2. Quality. Affirmative, negative, infinite. 3. Relation. Categorical, hypothetical, disjunctive. 4. Modality. Problematical, assertory, apodictic, or above contradiction. If we examine each of these forms of judgment, we discover that in every one is involved some peculiar idea which is its essential characteristic. Thus, a singular judgment, in which the subject of discourse is a single object, involves obviously the special idea of oneness or unity. A particular judgment relating to several objects implies the idea of plurality, and discriminates between the several objects. Now, the whole list of these ideas will constitute the complete classification of the fundamental conceptions of the understanding, regarded as the faculty which judges, and these may be called categories. One, of quantity, unity, plurality, tonality. Two, of quality, reality, negation, limitation. Three, of relation, substance and accident, cause and effect, action and reaction. 4. Of modality. Possibility, impossibility. Existence, non-existence. Necessity, contingence. These, then, are the fundamental, primary, or native conceptions of the understanding, which flow from or constitute the mechanism of its nature, and are inseparable from its activity, and are hence, for human thought, universal and necessary, or a priori. These categories are pure conceptions of the understanding, inasmuch as they are independent of all that is contingent in sense. Transcendental Dialectic A distinction is usually made between what is immediately known and what is only inferred. It is immediately known that in a figure bounded by three straight lines, there are three angles, but that these angles together are equal to two right angles is only inferred. In every syllogism is first a fundamental proposition, secondly another deduced from it, and thirdly the consequence. In the use of pure reason, its concepts or transcendental ideas aim at unity of all conditions of thought. So all transcendental ideas may be arranged in three classes, the first containing the unity of the thinking subject, the second the unity of the conditions of phenomena observed, and the third the unity of the objective conditions of thought. This classification becomes clear if we know that the thinking subject is the object matter of psychology, while the system of all phenomena, the world, is the object matter of cosmology, and the being of all beings, God, is the object matter of theology. Hence we perceive that pure reason supplies three transcendental ideas, namely the idea of a transcendental science of the soul, psychologia rationalis, of a transcendental science of the world, cosmologia rationalis, and lastly, of a transcendental science of God, Theologia Transcendentalis. It is the glory of transcendental idealism that by it the mind ascends in the series of conditions till it reaches the unconditioned, that is, the principles. We thus progress from our knowledge of self to a knowledge of the world, and through it to a knowledge of the Supreme Being. 3. The Antinomies of Pure Reason Transcendental reason attempts to reconcile conflicting assertions. There are four of these antinomies, or conflicts. First antinomy, thesis. The world has a beginning in time and is also limited in regard to space. Proof, were the world without a time beginning, we should have to ascribe a present limit to that which we can have no limit, which is absurd. 
Again, were the world not limited in regards to space, it must be conceived as an infinite whole. Yet it is impossible thus to conceive it. Antithesis The world has neither beginning in time, nor limit in space, but in both regards is infinite. Proof The world must have existed from eternity, or could never exist at all. If we imagine it had a beginning, we must imagine an anterior time when nothing was. But in such time, the origin of anything is impossible. At no moment could any cause for such a beginning exist. Second antinomy, thesis. Every composite substance in the world is composed of simple parts. This thesis seems scarcely to require proof. No one can deny that a composite substance consists of parts, and that these parts, if themselves composite, must consist of other less composite, till at length we come, by compulsion or thought, to the conception of the absolutely simple as that wherein the substantial consists. Antithesis No composite thing in the world consists of simple parts, and nothing simple exists anywhere in the world. Proof Each simple part implied in the thesis must be in space. But this condition is a positive disproof of their possibility. A simple substance would have to occupy a simple portion of space, but space has no simple parts. The supposition of such a part is the supposition, not of space, but of the negation of space. A simple substance, in existing and occupying any portion of space, must contain a real multiplicity of parts external to each other. In other words, it must contradict its own nature, which is absurd. Third Antinomy Thesis The causality of natural law is insufficient for the explanation of all the phenomena of the universe. For this end, another kind of causality must be assumed, whose attribute is freedom. Proof All so-called natural causes are effects of preceding causes, forming a regressive series of indefinite extent with no first beginning. So we never arrive at an adequate cause of any phenomenon. Yet natural law has for its central demand that nothing shall happen without such a cause. Antithesis All events in the universe occur under the exclusive operation of natural laws, and there is no such thing as freedom. Proof The idea of a free cause is an absurdity, for it contradicts the very law of causation itself, which demands that every event shall be in orderly sequence with some preceding event. Now free causation is such an event, being the active beginning of a series of phenomena. Yet the action of the supposed free cause must be imagined as independent of all connection with any previous event. It is without law or reason, and would be the blind realization of confusion and lawlessness. Therefore, transcendental freedom is a violation of the law of causation, and is in conflict with all experience. Who must of necessity acquiesce in the explanation of all phenomena by the operation of natural law, and thus transcendental freedom must be pronounced a fallacy. Fourth Antinomy Thesis Some form of absolutely necessary existence belongs to the world, whether as its part or as its cause. Proof Phenomenal existence is serial, mutable, consistent. Every event is contingent upon a preceding condition. The conditioned presupposes, for its complete explanation, the unconditioned. The whole of past time since it contains the whole of all past conditions, must of necessity contain the unconditioned or also absolutely necessary. Antithesis There is no absolutely necessary existence, whether in the world as its part or outside of it as its cause. Proof Of unconditionally necessary existence within the world there can be none. 
The assumption of a first unconditioned link in the chain of cosmical conditions is self-contradictory. For such link or cause, being in time, must be subject to the law of all temporal existence, and so be determined, contrary to the original assumption, by another link or cause before it. The supposition of an absolutely necessary cause of the world, existing without the world, also destroys itself. For, being outside the world, it is not in time. And yet, to act as a cause, it must be in time. This supposition is therefore absurd. The theses in these four antinomies constitute the teaching of philosophical dogmatism. The antitheses constitute doctrines of philosophical empiricism. 4. Criticism of the Chief Arguments for the Existence of God The ontological argument aims at asserting the possibility of conceiving the idea of ens relissimum, of being possessed of all reality. But the idea of existence and the fact of existence are two very different things. Though my pocket be empty, I may conceive it to contain a hundred talers. If I conceive them there, I can only conceive them as actually existing there. But alas, the fact that I am under this necessity of so conceiving by no means carries with it a necessity that the coins should really be in my pocket. That can only be determined by experience. The cosmological argument contends that if anything exists, there must also exist an absolutely necessary being. Now, at least I myself exist. Hence, there exists an absolutely necessary being. The argument coincides with that by which the thesis of the fourth antinomy is supposed. The objections to it are summed up in the proof of the antithesis of the fourth antinomy. As soon as we have recognized the true conception of causality, we have already transcended the sensible world. The physico-theological or teleological argument is that which is often styled the argument from design. It proceeds not from general, but particular experience. Nature discloses manifold signs of wise intention and harmonious order, and these are held to betoken a divine designer. This argument deserves always to be treated with respect. It is the oldest and clearest of all proofs, and best adapted to convince the reason of the mass of mankind. It animates us in our study of nature. And it were not only a cheerless but an altogether vain task to attempt to detract from the persuasive authority of this proof. There is naught to urge against its rationality and its utility. All arguments, however, to prove the existence of God must, in order to be theoretically valid, start from specifically or exclusively sensible or phenomenal data, must employ only the conceptions of pure physical science, and must end with demonstrating in sensible experience an object congruous with or corresponding to the idea of God. But this requirement cannot be met, for scientifically speaking, the existence of an absolutely necessary God cannot be either proved or disproved. Hence room is left for faith in any moral proofs that may present themselves to us apart from science. With this subject, ethics, the science of practice or of practical reason, will have to deal.